Would you open once again to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, a very simple verse. We're talking about God's eternal love. This is our fifth in a series. I'm going to try to end it today, but if I don't, you understand. God's eternal love. We began with Jeremiah 31, 3, and other verses about how God draws us by his loving kindness. We had nothing to do with it. He did it all from Ephesians 1, the foundations of the world, and so forth. And then we begin to look at the ways that love is expressed, ways that God does what he does, and we call it love, and what he requires of us to do in loving him back. Love is a marvelous subject, before I read this verse. Down through history, great hymn writers have written so many songs. I looked up a list of them. I, there's a lot of songs. Some of them I don't know and never heard of, but multiple hymns have been written about love. Amazing love, so divine, is a line in one song. Love lifted me. And then there was one that was written in 1917 about the love of God. And it talks about is greater than pen or tongue could ever tell. It reaches beyond the highest star, the lowest hell. And the third verse of that song, without quoting it, it says, if the ocean was ink, if it was all ink and the heaven was parchment and every blade of grass was a a quill or a pen. And every human being on this earth was by trade a scribe. It said we would run out of ink and run out of room in describing the love of God. I can't wrap myself around all of that. And that was found on the walls of an insane asylum in 1917. So while you may think some people are crazy, there are significant ways that God has touched people's hearts, whom the world thought was not right, but, well, they wrote some nice stuff about the love of God, the immensity of it, the wonder of it. And the great wonder about God's love causes us to say, why? Look around at who God has chosen to love. You didn't choose him. He chose you. Now, verse 19 we love him because he first loved us. I think I said this last week. We cannot love him back. As members of churches or thoughtful, intelligent people, we are not capable of loving God unless he first loves us. Because the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. He didn't have to. There was nothing compelling about anybody in this room that would command divine love on your life. All we like sheep had gone astray. There wasn't a good one amongst all of us or your parents or your grandparents or anybody in your family tree. Not a one. Why would God love people like us? Sinful? I mean, casual religion at best, treating God as just a, a name and a Bible and a church as a socially proper place to go. Why would he love people like that? I don't know. 
I guess it pleased God to love us. It just pleased him. And yet while we were unlovely, Romans 5 says, while we were yet sinners, while we were out there acting ignorant, Christ loved us and did all the things that God does to bring unloving people to himself and change their lives. Only he can do that. Why does he do that? God so loved the world that he did something that compelled us to think about it at least once in our life and hopefully to experience it in our life. God draws his people to him. And when he draws them to him, he is forever connected with that person the rest of their life. He can't love you more. He can't love you less. Love is love. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Even though you disappoint him, he has a method and a way of bringing you back and correcting you. We'll get to that hopefully at the end of the message. But love is a marvelous subject. We asked the question the last couple of weeks, if we, because we say we love God, if we love God, how do we do it? I mean, how do we show it? What do we do that examples love for God? And the first thing we said was, we believe him. We trust what he says. First John 5, 3. We keep his word. John 14, 21. John 14, 23. John 15, 10. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just saying those are verses that we've been talking about that tells that if a man loves God, if he loves God, not a system of religion, not a Baptist method, but if he loves God, he'll do that. He'll rely on God. He'll lean on God. He'll find that as God leads him through life, he gets in a lot of places he never thought he would ever be and doesn't know how to get out. He has to turn to the Lord and trust him. They have to. And the second thing we said about it, that if a man loves God, he will love his neighbor as himself. The people you love don't have to be Christians. You by nature as a Christian, because of Christ in you, you have compassion. You care about people. You don't want to see people hurt or harmed. You want to see people relieved and delivered. We call it mercy. We are merciful people because of what God is doing in us. If we don't show mercy, the book of James says, we won't get it. But if Christ is in you, if he is master and Lord of your life, you'll be merciful. You'll love the brethren. Because if you can't love him, those whom you see, how can you love God whom you haven't seen? You have to care about people. Loving somebody doesn't mean you have to run up and hug them and do all of that. Loving is caring. It's giving of yourself on the behalf of somebody else to help them or do whatever it is that they need. Like John wrote, whoso has this world's good, and all of us have a bit, little bit of it, if we see a brother or a sister in need, and we have no care for that, we don't care, the question is, how does the love of God dwell in you? Now, there could be a person in need that God may say, leave them alone, I'm dealing with them. You have to learn to be sensitive to the Lord. But we care. And a third thing is that we endure. We don't give up, we endure trials, we endure chastisement, we endure tribulation and persecution. In other words, none of that causes us to quit. 
Quitting is the easiest thing anybody will ever do. Starting is easy. Going to church, grabbing the plow, all of those lofty things is easy to do. It's staying with it that is the great test of your character. And it's easy to quit. But if you love God, if he is the love and the affection of your life, you won't quit. You will hold fast. And a fourth thing that we said last week was that if you love the Lord, it's separation from the world. Because you realize you can't love God and love the things in this world that they control you. You live in the world. You can't escape the world and the things that God gives you in this world to enjoy. But your love and your passion, your deepest devotion and affections have to be towards the Lord. And everything else has to come in light of that. Now, I said last week as we close, if this is how we show God our love for him... How does God respond to our love for him? He obviously inspires us to do what we do, to live on his level. He does that. We couldn't if he didn't. So what is the response of God to us as we do our best? These are just four of many things I mentioned. As we do this, what does God do in return? As I began to research this, I thought this is way over my head because... Well, every chapter in the Bible has something about it. So I've just narrowed it down to two or three things. I want you to turn to Psalm 91. What a wonderful place to start anything. Psalm 91, God's response to our love for him. Psalm 91, and I'm sure you all are very familiar with I hope you are, that you've read it, listened to it, I want to go down to the 14th verse because it specifically says in verse 14, he says, because he had set his love upon me, therefore will I. Now, it's us who set our love upon him. It is he, obviously, as you read what he does, we couldn't do that, but he does that. So as we love him, as we set our love upon him, Our choices are all about trust. Like in verse 9, he said, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation. Because you've been willing to make God your trust. One of the things he said there was no evil shall befall you. No plague will come near your dwelling. God will give charge to his angels to keep you in all of your ways, those are marvelous things to say. No wonder the psalmist said, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. I mean, with all of these promises and God being in such charge of our lives, that is, if we're listening and following, you can't just read a verse of Scripture and say, well, that's going to happen for me. Now, you've got to do the condition. Psalm 91, verse 1 talks about, first of all, you that dwell in the secret place of the Most High. You shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Not a scholarly reader of the Bible, but you who do the dwelling. It's you who say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my God. It's you who say, I will trust him. That's the first two verses of Psalm 91. 
But because you're willing to do that, even in all of our struggles, even in all the disappointments and the down days we've had in our lives, you're still here. You haven't quit. God still has his hand on you. He's not done with you, but he's not going to let go of you. And he's going to bring you unto himself. He says, now, because you are willing to love him that way, that is, make him God. Notice what he says in verse 14. Two things he begins, he said, therefore will I deliver him. Everybody in this room needs to be delivered from something somewhere in your life. A word delivered there has to do with being rescued. We're not allowed to just perish. God delivers us by rescuing us uh, that we escape and we get out away from whatever's trying to, to stop us. Has anything ever tried to keep you from being a Christian? Have you ever been disappointed and downtrodden, ready to throw in the towel? Why didn't you then? Because you got rescued. You may not even understand it or be able to see how he did it, but he delivered you. Look at verse 3. He says deliverance again in verse 3. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence. That's a plague. That's a plague. That's, a, that's something that destroys a pestilence. Surely. He said, he will deliver you from such a thing as that. This is from the hand of the enemy, from the power of destruction that's in the world. The one who goes about like a roaring lion, he may get his clutches on you. He did Peter, but he couldn't keep them there just as a righteous man may fall seven times, but God will always be there to lift him up. There's no promise of not falling and skinning your knees in this life. There's no promise of being a Christian, everything just goes right because you read something. There's no promise in this life that this is an easy life. When God uses words like persecution or rebuke or fainting, those are not comfortable words, but they're words that describe us, things that are going to happen to us things that you will encounter in this life. You don't even know how strong you are. You don't know how tough you are. You don't even know how loving or how faithful you are until you're put in a situation you don't want to love, you don't want to be faithful, you just want to get out. You're trained like that. The world's made us like that. Everybody that comes to God is adverse to God. Every single one of us. There is nobody that God brings to him that does not need to be changed. And as he begins to change you, you encounter everything you don't want to do. And it's all about, will you trust the Lord in this? But he said, he will deliver you. He said, he'll also deliver you in verse 15. Verse 15 means he'll equip you for war. He'll draw you out. He says, deliver us three times in Psalms 91. Three times he will deliver you. God cares about you. He cares about your family and about your children. He cares about you. His plans for us are already laid. He knows the end from the beginning, and God is not going to let something 
overwhelm you or overtake you to keep you from being what he wants you to be. He's in charge. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. And God is what? Who will not allow you to be tested or tempted beyond that which you're able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. We have no excuse for quitting. God, in the misery of the, some of our miserable moments in life, will provide a way of escape. If that was not true, I could not stand here this morning. It would have been over for me many, many years ago. God, knowing the weakness of our lives and the weakness of our frames, has always been kind and gentle to us, making sure that we're never overwhelmed while we feel like we are. He always brings us back, brings us out, makes us happy, makes us that way. In fact, I don't know if we can ever legitimately and fully love God the way he wants to be loved until we realize that we are totally in this world helpless against the forces of evil without God helping us. Thank you, Lord. Something has to come out of us that recognizes that, that God is in charge. That God is in charge. In the 91st Psalm, listen to the things he says in verse 15 and 16. There's many things in Psalm 91, but let me just point out this. A couple things he says. When the Lord loves you because you love him, his response, number one, he said in verse 15, he said, he shall call upon me and I will answer him. Wouldn't that be nice to know that he's going to answer you? Second thing he says, I will be with him in trouble. You ever been in trouble? I know you haven't. I have. I'll be in trouble for you. Sometimes we get real loose with our thinking in this world and things happen to us and we don't understand. Well, that's not right. Find ourselves bound up with something. We call that trouble, spiritual trouble. God said, I'll be with you in trouble. Paul was in a jail cell in Acts chapter 23. He had been beaten on, pounded on, nearly pulled in half. The soldiers had to rescue Paul and get him away from the religious crowd that was trying to kill him. And while he was hurting and sit there and disappointed and alone, feeling abandoned, rejected maybe by the Lord, Jesus appeared to him. There's Paul in a lonely old stinky cell, served God all of his life, gave God the best years of his life, inspired us all, wrote half the New Testament alone in a jail cell, nobody helping him. This door isn't going to open up, but Jesus comes into the cell. Would that be good? He says, how you doing, Paul? Now, these are my words. <laughs> how you doing? Well, you're doing good, Paul. Uh, you're going to go to Rome, and you're going to die there. So rejoice. You know what Jesus said to him? Be of good cheer. 
You know what we would have said? How can I be of good cheer in this nasty place? Look at me, I'm hurting all over. They pull my hair, they're yanking on me, and some of them hit me in the jaw. How am I supposed to be happy in a place like this? What's happened? What have I done wrong? Jesus would have said, you haven't done anything wrong. Have you considered Jesus? Who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself? What did he do wrong? Where did he sin? Where did he mess up? Well, he never did. Do you think all the things that happened to him were because he sinned? No. He was proving himself to us, the patterned son, the kind of man God wants us to be. We saw how he acted and how he reacted, how he endured. That's what Romans 12 says, that lest you be wearied and faint in your mind, consider him. Look what he went through for you. He never whined and cried and opened his mouth and said, if that's the way you're going to treat me, I'm going to quit. He never did that. He committed himself to his father and trusted that what God started and what God wanted, God would do. I'll let him do it. So be it. It was no whining, no crying, no complaining. We got a long way to go. But you see, he said in verse 15, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and I will honor him. We need all of that. But the 16th verse is what I want to major on, just two things. The first thing he said was, with long life will I satisfy you. Now, our natural question is, how long is long? Is a long life? Some say, well, Psalm 90 says it's 70 years. No, Psalm 90 doesn't say that. Psalm 90 was referring, you know, the word says the days of a man's life are 90 years and some by reason of strength live 80 years. He's talking about coming out of Egypt and the curse. Some of them, they died before their time. Well, what about King David? Well, the Bible says about King David, he died at age 70. That doesn't seem very old to me. But the Bible says he was full of days and died in a good old age. You say, well, that's not so old. Well, it was for him. Now, he died at 70 years old. The Bible said he was full of days. Whereas Jehoiada, he died at 130. And the Bible said he was full of days. So I cannot say I get to live 70. I've already lived 70 years. I can't say I get to live to be 94 or 5. I probably will. But I can't say that. I don't know that, but I know this, that however long I do live, what does he say in that verse? With long life, what? There you go. I'd rather die satisfied than disappointed. I'd rather close my eyes with a smile on my face and a frown on my face. I'd rather know the day was coming and get ready for it, call my family together, make sure they don't kill each other after I'm gone and settle some stuff. And then just slip off into the presence of God. I think that'd be a great way to go. And I'll tell you what, the older you get, the less this world has for you. It's just not as big a deal as it used to be. 
Long life, I don't know how long is. The Bible doesn't say how long life is. It just says with long life, he will satisfy you. Satisfy is a good word, folks. Satisfy is a wonderful, wonderful description of the kind of life that God wants you to have. It means to be filled to the full. What if you were able to say at age 70, I've had it, I've given it all back to the Lord, and now I enjoy everything more. I, <laughs> what a life. This has been a wonderful life. Have you lived a good life? Have you been satisfied? Yeah. You will not dread leaving this world when it's time to go. You won't go, oh, no, oh, no. Like Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with God. Isn't that a good way to walk through life? God is in such control in all these years of being led by the Lord and going through this and going through that in jail cells and being beaten and read 2 Corinthians 10 or 11 and how much he went through. Finally said, I have a desire to depart and be with the Lord. Not bad. And the only thing I want while I'm left on this earth is only one thing that I desire. I just want to know him better. The absolute serenity and the fulfillment that most will never know of just knowing him, being in his presence, and talking to him. It's easy to pray in situations like that because he's there. It's long life will I satisfy you. Why? Why would he do that? Because you love him. Isn't that right? And what's the last thing he said? In verse 16, and show him what? My salvation. My salvation. I can't do merit to the word in just a moment. Salvation, both Hebrew and Greek words, encompass the whole life. Your salvation begins at the new birth. It happens right now. Your salvation ends in the resurrection of your body. That's Three. This is one and three. In the middle is a life you lived. And in that life, God ministers to you, deals with you, and brings you all the way through. He is saving you and keeping you and rescuing you and healing you and making you whole. The words are used so many different ways. As church people, we usually think of being saved as just getting your name in heaven and getting some fire insurance. And, you know, that's, that's about all there is to it. But saved means saved from what? So much. God said, I will show you my salvation. For you preachers, there's your sermon. There's your three-part sermon on the salvation of God. What it is, how it works, and why it works. That'll keep you busy in the books. Turn to Psalm 23. Another thing that God says... He said in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is the one who leads me. Why would he lead me? Because he wants to. Because he loves me. My best interest is in his heart to bring me where I was destined to be brought to, doing the things that he wants me to do. You're sitting out there saying, well, I don't know if I've ever done anything. You might be surprised at the lives you've touched and didn't know it. 
But God's going to use everybody in this room some way. Some way or another, you're going to be used. Different ways, but you're going to be used. He said in Psalm 23, as our shepherd, this is what he does for us that we need. Now, there are 13 blessings here. We've memorized this and haven't majored and haven't meditated on the specifics. I shall not want. Isn't that good? You don't have to sit around crying about what you don't have, wishing you had what somebody else had. He leads me beside the still waters and the green pastures. In verse 6, he says, surely, surely, as I mentioned a while ago, after all these different ways that God has chosen to love us, surely, surely what? With all these promises and beginning now to see who I am, I'm his child. He's my God. He says I can come to him in time of need and approach his throne, didn't he? All he wants is clean hands and a pure heart. Not living like the dog all week and running to God on Sunday morning. No, he's talking about a life lived where you keep yourself clean. You can come boldly to the throne of grace. He'll always be there. He'll bring you in as a father. Jesus said in John 14, you know, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments and he will love us and he and the father will reveal themselves to us. A revelation of God. You won't find it in a, in a hymnal. You can read about it, but you only find it as God shows it. It's that divine work of God in our hearts. Still time in your life when you're listening and you're paying attention and he shows it to you. You may not hear the rest of the sermon, but you heard something, something from heaven. God begins to make you aware of who he is. And all you want to do is bow your head and be still and know him and know about him. Or as Jesus said, and learn about him. Yoke yourself up with him. Go where he's going. Do what he's doing. Be with him. It just seemed like that begins to take precedence in your life. You no longer just go to church. You go to the house of the Lord because I have a need that will probably get met this morning. God will say something to me. Hopefully everybody gets something. But he'll say something to me and I will hear him and he will make clear something to me I've never had before, never seen quite clearly before. How do you know he'll do that? Well, I hope I pray for he get here. Lord, I, in Jesus' name, open my eyes and heart this morning to hear what you have to say. I have many needs, Lord. There's not a person in this room that could not have prayed that before you got here. But we're so distant sometimes from our needs that we just sort of wander in and... Go through the, and then listen to the song, and then go, go home. But when God comes into focus, and you begin to realize what this message is about, his love, he singled you out. He didn't have to, but he does. And he brings you to him. And he begins to do that marvelous work.
personal work, you and him. And everything changes. Everything begins to change. Who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing, everything begins to change. More and more, life is about him than it is about you. Surely, God's goodness and God's mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Where is he going to lead me if I follow him? Where is he going to lead me that goodness and mercy won't go with us? What kind of a situation will I find myself in following the Lord that goodness and mercy are not there also? Oh, don't think that because you're following the Lord, everything is just smooth. Remember, it was after Jesus was baptized. The Bible said the Spirit of the Lord led him into the wilderness to be tested of the devil, who for 40 days tried to wear him out. He needed strength from the angels. They had to come and strengthen him after that. He never yielded to all the temptation. He was weak and down and maybe in his mind because he was a man. He might have wondered, what have I done? Why do I have to go through this? But he didn't. He committed himself to God, the Bible says. He just trusted the Lord. God brought me here. God will get me out of here. And if he doesn't get me out of here, this is where I go home. How are you going to defeat a man like that? How could you beat a person like that who is totally into the hands of God? I don't know how you could. But he said, he will lead me beside the still waters and he will restore my soul. Do you all believe that you need to be restored? How about you preachers on the front row over here? Do you all believe you need to be restored? You know, when I read Psalm 23, I realize that the work of God in me is a work of restoration. I mean, I've fallen from something. I've gotten a long way away from where I ought to be, obviously. And he brings me to him, and he tells me. He tells me beforehand, as your shepherd, as your loving guide, and counselor, and keeper of your soul all your life. I'm going to change your life. I'm going to restore you back to where you should have been without Adam's sin. I'm going to bring you to me to where you're without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Can he do that? He's going to restore me. Soul is me. He's going to restore me, my mind, my attitude. My actions, my reactions, my hatefulness. That thing that comes out sometimes that you wish it wouldn't. That thing that wants to lash out and say stuff and do stuff and act certain. All of that stuff lies dormant in your life. You're going to follow him? He's going to deal with it. Look again in verse 3. What does it say he's going to do? He's going to lead. Does it say that? He's going to lead me. Now, all of you, let me have your attention. If God is going to lead us, that is only possible if we follow. Now, he say, this is the way I'm going to go. You follow me. Didn't he say, follow me? Turn to Matthew 16 while I'm talking. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Now, He's going to restore my soul, and the Bible said he's going to lead me. 
Now, if he's going to lead, it is imperative that I follow. If I do not follow, he does not lead. Are you with me? Somebody's going to follow him. He tells me to follow him. How far do you want to go with God? Any of you, listen, all of you, any of you, how far do you want to go with God? How much of this life are you willing to give up? How much are you willing to lay down and forsake to follow him? How much? Do you have a limit? Then you won't follow him all the way because you'll reach that limit. I promise you, God will bring you to it. You'll have to cross that line. Most Christians will not. I've been a Christian far too long to know that that's not true. Many, many, many people start. Many were chosen to follow him. Very few of them finished. We draw a line. We're not willing to forsake it all. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. This is a difficult decision. It can also disqualify you. It's your choice. He said, if any man will come after me, now let me stop. Does that mean that's how we follow? How about it, preachers? Is that how we follow? If we come after somebody, is that not the way we follow? He says, follow me. I'm going to come after him or I'm going to stand back and say, well, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I'd rather just go to church and have a nice place to sit. I don't know if I want to get involved in all that. No, no, that's not Christianity. That's just church. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Huh. Now, keep hold on to that verse. If he is going to lead me and I must follow, what must I be willing to do in order to follow? Deny what? Myself is one thing. What is self? Self is soul. Self is me. That's the decision-making part of me. That's where my will is. That's the part that even though I heard what God said, it can say no. Because this is where I calculate and, and think. As a man thinketh, so is he. The mind has to be renewed. We're talking about your mind and your thoughts. You see where he's leading you. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. The devil said, so you don't know if you want to follow him and lose it or not. You don't even know if you're willing to forsake everything or not. You heard that in a sermon. You said, amen. But now he says, follow me. And you think, well, uh, let me first go bury somebody or do. No, no. If you're going to follow me, you put your hand to the plow because if you say you're going to follow me and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. Now, what's happening here? God is bringing to the surface of my thinking everything in me that's established to serve me. I don't want to give this up. I don't want to give me up. I want to follow him. I want the benefits of religion. I want to walk on the water, turn the water into wine, and raise the dead. I don't want to die to self. What's the cross for, the second thing there? What's the cross for? The cross is where you die to all your resistance to God. It's where you go to die. Well, that's not the kind of thing I want to hear. 
I thought we're supposed to live. It's an interesting story, isn't it? We live by dying. You gain your life, you lose your life. You lose your life, you gain your life. What's all of that? It takes a revelation. You got to see it. Otherwise, you're walking with the Lord kind of like Peter did when Jesus went to the cross. He followed him, Matthew said, afar off. Oh, he still could see him, but he didn't want to get any closer to him than that because of all the persecution, all the trouble that came. Now, he held back. Christians are like that. We look around. There's enough of us here that we feel good in the group, but we see people going through things. Oh, man, I don't know about that. I don't know if I love him that much. Peter didn't. Didn't he say that? You love me, Peter, more than these? He said, I like church. I like church. Those are my words. But I'm not willing to give my life up for you. I just proved it back there. I just proved where I really am with you. Oh, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And Peter realized, you know, I'm full of me. I am full of me. I don't love the Lord. I love things about him. I love all the stuff, but I don't, I love me more than I love you, Lord. I don't want to give up me for you, but Jesus said, if you want to follow, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Where he leads me, I will follow what he feeds me. I will swallow. And whatever he wants, take my life and let it be a whole lot more of things for me. No. Consecrated. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. You really want to go that far. We're talking about the love of God and how it affects us and what he does out of his love for us to bring us where he wants us. It's not a fun trip. It is not a fun trip. It is not an easy trip. It's not an enjoyable trip. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I mentioned Hebrews the other day in our third point about enduring. But in this one, I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. It goes from verse 5 through verse 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you don't want that and you get out of that, if you're without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our own flesh which corrected us, and they did it 
that we might live. I mean, God said he does that so that we can live. Verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasures, but he for our profit. That, oh, what a message, that we might be partakers of his holiness. How else could we? Is there any other way to do that? No. It's a process. Partaking of it. You're declared to be. But he said here, partaking of it. Now he said, verse 11, now no chastening. No chastening for the present seemed to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Chastening, a word which describes God's corrections, his disciplines, things that God does to change us, to restore the soul, as we said a while ago. It's what God does. It's his counsel. It's his correction. Again, every son that God receives, every person, male or female, everybody that God receives needs to be chastened. Don't mean to be whipped. God doesn't just whip you because it's a good day to get whipped. He corrects us because we're so easily misled and we go back to our flesh so easy. So he corrects us. He has many ways of doing it. We mentioned last week in Psalm 119, in verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. You mean God would allow something like that in order to get my attention that I might see what he's saying? He certainly could. He certainly could. He said so. Oh, but I'm not going to believe that. Well, you got a Bible, believe it. Believe whatever it says. I'm just telling you that in the bigger picture, in the greater picture, Christianity is not about going to church and singing songs and trying to get to heaven. God could get us to heaven driving out of the parking lot. Boom. But it's about you while you're on this earth being transformed, being changed, becoming the kind of person that God wants you to be. God working in you, those things that he said he works in you. It's great to say God is in us, amen? But the description of what he does in us, verse 5, he said, don't faint when you're rebuked of him. You mean chastening has to do with rebuke? Do we ever need to be rebuked? Y'all better straighten up and say amen or something. Because there's not a soul I'm talking to that doesn't need to be corrected. And sometimes a correction is a rebuke. Peter began to sink. Didn't he in the water? He walked on the water. But when he began to sink, Jesus held him upright and said, Boy, you did good for a while. You know what he did? He rebuked him. Nobody was going to break. Well, Peter walked on the water. Peter said, I failed and I got rebuked for it. It seemed like all I did was fail. 
You'll deny me, Peter, before the rooster crow. You'll deny me three times. Get thee behind me, Satan. Remember he said that to him? Then on that seashore, as far as I can tell, there's only one reason Jesus met them all up on the seashore, and that was to get a hold of Peter. Peter had failed. He had been rebuked. He even said, go tell his disciples and Peter to meet me up there. Like he was no longer one of them. I wonder what Peter was thinking. I, I might as well quit. God's done with me. Everything I've done is wrong. Nothing I prayed for worked. Every time I've got down and claimed something, I didn't get it. So, you know, and then that happened and I did that and cursed. No, uh, you know, I've, I'm done. Except Peter couldn't deny that longing in his heart to be right with God. He just didn't know how and he felt like it messed up so much. It was no use trying, but he couldn't get away from that. Oh, God. That's when God's got his claim on you. And when he saw him on the seashore, he didn't wait till the boat got to the shore. I mean, Peter cannonballed out of that boat right to the shore. Walked on there dripping wet and looking, just staring at Jesus. And I'm sure Jesus, there's a fire between the two of them cooking those fishes. And Jesus looking back at him, and I think all Peter could do was just... And Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? What a moment in all the Bible, in all the biblical history. What a moment. God loving one man like that. A man who fails so bad. You think you failed? You never did what David did. You ever failed as bad as Peter did? And yet, there's Jesus in his goodness in his mercy to rescue to restore to bring back no you don't have everything he wants exactly the way he wants it Peter didn't but Jesus said I want you now the way you're thinking I want you you're the one I'm going to use to shepherd my sheep and your love for me will turn out as you read his epistles they'll turn out that way in the end if when you go through chasing he said You'll make it. You'll stand your ground. You'll survive. Why? Because something that God does in us, he just doesn't let us go. He doesn't leave us alone. Peter didn't go back and get in a fishing boat and go back to his old trade and give up God and quit. He didn't spend the rest of his life languishing in this world, waiting the sentence of death. No, Jesus doesn't leave him alone, doesn't leave you alone. As we'd say in Kentucky, all of y'all, he doesn't leave you alone. He brings you in here to rebuke you sometimes. Oh, no. Well, what do you say? Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. You know what the word despise means? It means to have little regard for. To think little of. Sounds like church to me. My son, don't think it's a meaningless thing for God to get on your case. <laughs> oh, well, I, you know, I messed up for you. <laughs> oh, no, it's deeper than that. This goes all the way to the soul. 
It pierces deep. It's like the word of God, a two-edged sword. It divides, it cuts into the discernment of your heart where your convictions are. Oh, God, don't leave me alone. Would David say, restore unto me the joy of your salvation? Oh, Lord, God didn't leave him alone. You know why? Because he loves him. But this walking with the Lord, this following Jesus, when you start to follow Jesus, he describes the walk as a time of rebuke. And look at verse 6, whom the Lord loved, he what? He chastens and what? And scourges every son that he receives. And if you're without this in your life, if you keep turning your head and walking away, I ain't ready for all that. I ain't ready. I'm not ready for all that. I don't. If you keep doing that, you're not even his son. If you're without chastisement, you're illegitimate. How's that? That's a little better. If you're not experiencing this God in you, changing you experience, Boy, I was reading in Proverbs. I finally made it to Proverbs through the Psalms and reading. And right away in Proverbs 1 and 2, what a chapter about wisdom. A man that's got wisdom will always display it by following its dictates. Whatever the word says is wisdom speaking. You follow that, everything in your life will wind up right. And if you don't want that, then you want something else. But you have nothing else outside of God except a certain death that's coming. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Now, you know what? Back to Psalm 23, when it talks about when you're rebuked and when the Lord chastens you and scourges you, that doesn't sound like still waters to me. Does that sound like still waters to you? He leads me beside the still waters. I like that kind of Christianity. Smooth. No troubled waters here, just smooth. Still waters. The green pastures. No desert. Did Jesus go into a desert? Ooh, that don't sound like Psalm 23. But he says he leads. He leads me where? Beside the still waters. Is that what being rebuked and chastened and scourged means? Look at verse 11. None of God's ways for us seems to be joyous. We don't like the idea that we're being tested and tempted and being feeling denied. How many times did you pray for something and it didn't work? It didn't happen yet. How many times did you feel like giving up because, well, I prayed and it didn't work and I don't guess God loves me anymore? How many times has that happened to you? Did you know that that attitude was lodged inside of you and he has to get rid of it? You come to the place where I have no controversy with God. He's altogether right. No more murmuring. No more complaining. No more of this, well, I'll tell you one thing. If this is the way it's going to work, there's no sense to me. You don't do that anymore. God's leading you, bringing you into all these kind of situations, hearing certain kinds of messages that deal with you, make you half mad, don't want to come back. 
deals with you because there is something lodged in us that's adverse to him, and he exposes it. Look at you. Look at the way you're acting. You're not getting what you thought you ought to get when you thought you ought to got it. Listen to you. I'm talking to me now. You all can take a break here. Listen to your complaints. I've heard mine. Oh, I've said, it ain't fair. I think I use ain't. It ain't fair. I guess Paul could have said that in a jail cell. It ain't right for me to be locked up in this jail cell, in this nasty place with Silas, who's complaining about me singing hymns in the middle of the It ain't right. I guess he could have said that. But you know what he did? Said nothing but rejoiced. Rejoice evermore. Chinky, chinky, linky, chinky, chinky. Chains making a good noise. Little background music. This is the will of God. Chinky, chinky. This is the will of God. Chink, chink, chink. Chinky, 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 chink. You know, he could have done. And then all of a sudden they fell off. The whole house got saved that very night. Man didn't complain about his situation. God told him a long time ago his life. He said when he fell off on the road to Damascus, the word Ananias sent to him, the word God gave to Ananias about Saul, was this man shall suffer great things for my name's sake. He never complained about it. He had to apologize for justifying himself in 2 Corinthians 11. He said, I'm speaking as a fool. Remember that? A man should never boast of what he's done or how far advanced he is. He should never do that. I'm speaking as a fool, but you all like fools, so let me speak like one. And there comes a time, folks, in our walk with God, you need to shut your mouth, put a watch over your mouth, lest you sin against God. If God leads me into trouble, didn't he say he will be with me in trouble? If the life I'm following leads me into trouble, he's there, isn't he? If he's there, then what should I complain about? Sometimes the best thing to do is just say, ah, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I thank you that you're in charge, Lord. And the devil says, what if you die? I'm ready to go. You're what? I am ready to go. It'd be a better place, wouldn't it? What can defeat a man like that? You give up your crying and your whining and your sorrow and your despair. We all have it. We face it all the time. Troubled waters are most of your life. But at the end, he will lead you. I can tell you this, and it's true. He will lead you beside the still waters where, well, what does he say at the end of verse 11? Now, no chasing for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless, afterward. After what? After all these things where God is changing us and dealing with these areas of our personality, that anger and that smart aleck and all that, all of that stuff. You say, well, I'm not going to do it. Then you won't be a son. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto whom? 
Unto whom? Not everybody. Not everybody. Unto those who are exercised thereby. What about those that faint? What about those that faint and draw back? You won't have a due season, will you? For in due season we shall what? Reap if what? If we faint not. Why do you faint? Because you don't want to go any further. You're afraid of the consequences of going any further. I just don't think I can make it. Uh, it's all, I, 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 I. It's all about self, soul, me. The very thing that God says, I have got to deal with that. You got to put that on the cross. That resistance to God, which is all about you, your ways, your ideas, your opinions, and your intelligence. You got to put all that on the cross and just let God be God and do with you whatever you want. You don't even belong to yourself. You gave yourself to him. You were bought with the price. You're his. He can do with you whatever he wants. Not everybody sees it that way. And they back off and they give up. But he says, let me read another version about verse 11. He says, for the moment of all disciplines, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me ask you here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly after 30 plus years or ever how many you've been here, are you being trained by God's discipline? Do you love him more and more than you do yourself? Peter couldn't say he did, but do you? Are you willing to lay it all down and do things his way? Let me ask you a final closing question. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 11 for this. Why all the difficulty? Why would a loving God see to it that we are rebuked, that we feel like fainting sometimes, following him? Why would he scourge us? We're his children. Why would he do this? Why wouldn't he just bring us into this room and love on us and let us sing Kumbaya with our arms locked together? Why would he keep telling us about his plan for us is changing us till we become new creatures and so forth? What does he say in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 32? Listen to it now. For when we are judged, you could use the word discerned. God discerns that. He makes the separations with the word, the Greek word. He separates things in your life. Things that need to be worked on, he works on it. In a good house, there's not only gold and silver, but stuff that needs to be worked on. He said, but when we are judged, what's happening to us as we're being judged? By the Lord. But corrected. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord for one reason. What is it? Do you see it? That we should not be what? Condemned. With whom? Is the world condemned? Then not all the world is saved. God doesn't love all the world like he does you. 
He doesn't chasten and refine and correct the world. He does that to you. If you don't want that, what happens to you? It's that illegitimate word. But notice he said, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the rest of the world. If God doesn't refine us, chasten us, and correct us, he will have to judge us. We cannot live like the world and say because we go to church, we're not of them. If we live like them, we'll die like them. And the separation that God makes is in this following him. And all those dark hours of your night and those times you feel like quitting and nothing's working right. Why don't you just give up? I don't understand. I, 30 years of life. Yeah, yeah. Quit. All you got to do to quit is like one guy did. Just close your Bible, lay it down, and walk away from it. Just walk away from it. That's all you got to do. Hell is that easy. And heaven's going to cost you everything. And yet when you get there and your head is bowed, you'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys that from the foundation of the world have been prepared for you. The world won't be there. They're the ghosts. They're on the other side. But you, you who pay the price, you who give up rights to yourself and let God be God, you'll be there. Then you'll realize what still waters and a peaceful place it is when you get into heaven. I've never been there. I've heard about it. What a marvelous, beyond description. Jesus said, eyes have not seen, ear hadn't, hadn't even entered into the mind of man what is prepared for us. And yet, if we, while we're down here in this world, we've got to fight, we've got to struggle, we're going to suffer, we're going to be chastised, we're going to struggle, we're going, God's going to deal with us, God's not going to leave us alone, our mind has to be renewed, we have to make good choices, and, and we get weary. And the warning in Hebrews 12 is, consider Jesus, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Or consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Put your hand to the plow and know that you're not alone. That he who gave us the plow to grip is he who goes before us, who stands beside us, and is behind us. God is good. Why would you pay such a price? Same reason Jesus did. You know why Jesus paid the price? Who for the joy that was set before him? You see it? You were there. He saw you like this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He went through the most horrible, as John was describing the other night, just went through all of that so that I can be here this morning right here and that you can be here right there. Listen to what I right here am saying to you right there. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, grant us a heart, a desire 
to live on your terms. They're not easy, Lord. I'm sure the more you describe them to us, the more human dread comes up, and we have to die to that. We're very fragile people. We're very vulnerable. We're not near what we would like to think we are. We are daily dependent on you, Lord. We truly are poor in spirit. We need every day something that only you can give us. And yet, Lord, there is hope. There is expectation in our hearts, just like in Peter's. He couldn't even quit, Lord. You rescued him, you'll rescue us. I ask you to continue to lead us any way we need to be led, Lord. Get out of us all the things that oppose you. Everything that makes us want to get despondent and give up, deal with it, Lord. I ask you to deal with it in all of us. Let grace do its work in us, and Lord, have mastery over our lives. I ask in Jesus' name. And while you're sitting there with your eyes closed, let me ask you a question. Is there something in your life this morning you need to deal with? Is there something in your life this morning that God is dealing with? Are you listening? Are you willing to surrender that this morning to the Lord? If you are, why don't you say before we stand and sing, why don't you just tell the Lord, Lord, take my life and let it be yours in every way, shape, and form. Make me the, be what you want me to be. Deliver me in Jesus' name. Amen. If the struggle you're facing is slowly replacing your hope with despair And the process is long and you're losing your song in the night You can be sure that the Lord has His hand on you Safe and secure, He will never abandon you are his treasure, and he finds his pleasure in you. Oh, he who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you. He'll be faithful to complete it. He'll be faithful to complete it. He who started the work will be faithful to complete it in you. Let's sing it again. Oh, he who began a good work in you. Oh, he who began a good work in you He'll be faithful to complete it 
He'll be faithful to complete it. He who started the work will be faithful to complete it in you. Amen. You believe that? Amen. That is good.